most of you have some sort of definition whenever I say, who is Jesus? Many of you understand Jesus is Lord. He's revealed by God in the Scriptures as the Messiah, fully God, fully man, went to a cross, died for our sins, was raised from the dead as a declaration by God of authority over sin, and in Christ we can have new life. This is our confession as a church. We're a new church here in the city. There's a lot of exciting things going on, and one thing that uh, we want to be sure of as we, as we are seeking the Lord and, and praying and asking God who He wants us to be in the city and as we partner with other churches that are being started all around us and that are, have been around all around us, uh, we want to make sure that not only are we asking God to bless, but we're asking God, what have you said, which is revealed in the Bible. And So before we get into Luke chapter 6, and by the way, if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 860, uh, 862. If you're new to the Bible, that's where it is. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot as a church is, is uh, identifying areas in our community, specifically in the Neartown area, where there is uh, a need for some restoration or that we as a church can, can get involved and help. And so we have quite a few exciting things going on this semester. Uh, one of them, a place that we've seen a need, is in our, uh, one of the local elementaries in our community. And as you know, uh, the education system, as much as there's really a lot of great things about it, one of the challenges there is, is for our teachers. Oftentimes our teachers are, work very hard and their classes are stacked up with kids. And so what we've said as a church is we want to make sure we're mindful of those that are influencing really the greatest number of uh, children in our community, the teachers in our public schools. So uh, I asked uh, the church, hey, can we get involved at Poe Elementary and do something to encourage the teachers? One of the small groups that meets during the week stepped up and said, yes, we want to put together some little care packages. And so I think we have a picture, and it's, this is Poe Elementary here. This is a picture of something, I'm not sure exactly what it is. Oh, art car, okay. So this, oh, it's kind of hard to tell in the picture. But anyway, but what this small group did was they put together these little uh, lunch bags, and in there they put like a gift card, and they put some candy, and I think they put, um, I don't know what else they put in there. Actually, I've been asked, and I don't know, did you like it? Yes, well then, cool, you know. But uh, so it's been, and so we distributed 70 of these to, so every staff member at Polimentary received one of these bags, and it's been really overwhelming the response from this community and from the school positively towards our church. The, the, the principal sent out an email to, uh, to everybody in the school saying, uh, you know, Neartown Church, and they mentioned my name, and so it was kind of interesting. Kobe came home and, and said that his teacher goes, she was reading the email in class, and she looks up, looks over at him and says, Kobe, is your dad a pastor? <laughs> yes, he is. And so it was kind of a cool connection for them. Now he's got to be on his best behavior. Um, but uh, so anyway, so just well done. And you say, well, how in the world did we do that? You know how we did it? It's because of the ongoing generosity of the people of Neartown Church. We didn't have to go out and raise a bunch of money. We had money available because those of you that are giving faithfully to the mission of Neartown allows us to do things like this. So uh, kind of a cool thing that happened for us. So anyway, Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. This is a, a, a section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, or some call it the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, it's found in each of the Gospels, and Luke's account is a little shorter than, than Matthew's, and, and I think a little bit longer than Mark's, but it's basically a sermon that Jesus gave. And, and Jesus, at this point in his 
public ministry was very popular. People liked him a lot, mostly because he could heal, and there was a lot of sickness in this day, and so he could do a lot of incredible things. His teaching was powerful. Uh, People described him as being one who taught with authority. It was unique. There were a lot of teachers, lots of rabbis in this day, but Jesus was particularly interesting to the crowds because the way in which he spoke accompanied with the deeds that he did was really, really special. And so the crowd was great. And so we see these rhythms in Scripture where Jesus would teach, the crowd would swell, he'd do some kind of healing, and then he would have to retreat to some place because maybe the crowd was coming for the wrong reason. Some of them, they were just kind of coming to see the dog and pony show. And so Jesus would remove himself, and they would come back to the crowd, or they would come to him. And regularly along the way, he would have these moments where he would, he would clarify to them what it meant to follow him. Because as you can imagine, there were a lot of people that liked him for what he could do for them in a temporary sense, right? They're sick. He can heal them. Well, I've got to get around this guy. He's a popular man. Um, he's exciting. I mean, the villages, the people from villages, wherever he was near, would, would leave their villages. And uh, John and I were talking about this passage, and he described it this way, that villages would shut down. Because he was so excited they would come and, and want to be near Jesus. But all along the way, Jesus clarified to them what it meant to have faith in him. And I promise you, just like us, their understanding of faith was being defined in each encounter with Jesus. Today, the main idea as we look at this passage, a part of this Sermon on the Mount, is that our obedience reveals the authenticity of our faith. Our obedience reveals the authenticity of our faith. You say you believe, but words are cheap. Show me your actions. Last week, in case you weren't here, the passage as we looked at the miracles that Jesus did was at the center of life with Jesus Christ is faith. So this idea of faith in Christ is really, really important. Our obedience reveals what our faith is like. It's easy to say, yes, I have faith in Jesus. That's easy. But what becomes more difficult is obeying the commands of Christ, and oftentimes our obedience to the commands of Christ reveal whether or not our faith is genuine. Now, all of us, I want to be very clear, are imperfect. Not not a person in here, including myself, is going to be able to obey Jesus perfectly. We will all fail, we'll all stumble, and oftentimes those failings remind us of why Jesus came in the first place, because we're not perfect, right? So this isn't about saying to you, if you're not perfect, then you probably aren't a Christian, but this is saying to you that it is important to obey, very important to obey. I'm learning a lot about the Heavenly Father as I learn to father my own children. My oldest son, his name is Kobe, and he's really a good kid, he's eight years old, He's entering that season or that, that phase of his life where he's no longer a baby boy. He's a little more hesitant to, to kiss mom when she drops him off at school. He doesn't snuggle quite as much. If you're a parent of younger children, just so you know that's coming. He, 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 he's, he's a little more independent. I mean, I kind of see him sometimes. He he's pushes back a little bit. If I set the boundary, I see him budging up against it a little more. He wants to see... I mean, it's a little bit like... You know, who's the king of the jungle in this home? And, and one thing about Kobe is he's, he, he loves God. He has Jesus and has, believes in the gospel at, at the way that he can as an eight-year-old boy. 
But my job is to teach him uh, how to obey. Because part of parenting is me telling him, I'm trustworthy. You can trust what I'm saying for you. Obey me in this area, and your life will be better off for it. I promise you. That's part of parenting. And, and the way that God has designed it is that his learning my authority and, and, and to obey my commands as a father will help him understand what it means to obey the Heavenly Father. Just a couple days ago, I mentioned that we went camping. And camping with the Cub Scouts is quite an adventure. Basically what happens is you, you show up and the kids just go crazy for 48 hours. And, and, and it's, it's awesome, especially for the boys, you know. Um, they're, they're out there, they're running around, but right when we get there, every single time, I've done this multiple times, I had the same conversation with Kobe. I said, Kobe, obey me in this area. Protect your feet. Protect your feet. And you're like, why, Dad? Because he wants to wear flip-flops everywhere, right? I said, you've got to wear shoes. You have to tie up your shoes and protect your feet. I said, because if you don't protect your feet, it's going to ruin your time here. And every single camp out, he has ignored me. Every one of them. Here's what happened two days ago. We get there. I see that Kobe's shoes, he does have tennis shoes on. His shoes are kind of loose. I said, Kobe, you need to tighten up your shoes and protect your feet. Stay out of the water. If your shoes get wet, it's going to ruin your camp out. And the reason is because if your feet get wet and your shoes are loose, then all the running around, what's it going to do? It's going to make your skin on your feet moist, and it's going to cause blisters in your feet more easily. Well, if you have blisters on your feet, you can't run around anymore, right? And so I tell him, I say, Kobe, uh, obey me. And so I, I have to go to the convenience store real quickly, and I come back, and he's soaking wet. I mean, soaking wet. And I said, Kobe, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, we were battling the Weeblos. And I said, well, did, did you win? Okay. Um, and, and they said, we're battling the Weeblos. I said, well, well, why are you wet? Well, because I was the water man. And so he would go and get a bucket of water. And when the Weeblos would come close, he would dump it on him. And I said, well, you lost. I mean, you're soaking wet. And so his shoes are soaking wet. And I said, Kobe, your feet are wet. And I told you to not allow your feet to get wet because it's going to ruin your time. And he just kind of scampers off. And I said, tie your shoes. And I see that they're loose. So you know where the story's going. So we get to the night. He takes his shoes off. Dad, my feet are bothering me. I said, it's because you let your shoes get wet, son. And the next morning we get up. He's running around. I look down as I'm fishing with my other son on the dock. And Kobe is standing in the lake. The reason he's standing in the lake because there was about 10 boys trying to get a log into the water. And Kobe thought, I'll get this log into the water. You know, he's trying to prove to everybody that he's, uh, he's the big dog. And so he's pushing. And so he, and, but it's not quite out there. He stands in the lake and his shoes, shoes get even more wet. His feet get even, even more wet. About three hours later, he comes to me. Dad, my feet hurt so bad. I said, son, I was kind of like, good. You know, I mean, <laughs> I say, son, the reason that your feet hurt is because you did not obey me. I was telling you how you can make the most of this trip. You must believe me, have faith in me as your father, that I can see what's good for you. He took his shoes off, and sure enough, his feet looked like mashed potatoes. They were so gross looking, and you'll never look at mashed potatoes the same. And, and they, were, they were wet, and so I said, son, and so what he had to do for an hour was sit by the fire and let his feet dry off. And then I looked at his feet, and he had blisters all in between his toes and underneath, and, and the skin had basically rubbed itself loose. So while his friends are all out enjoying 
the camp out. Here he is, uh, straddled by this injury, sitting by the fire. And I could see he was really dejected and really disappointed. What was the problem? He did not obey me. This is the same way we ought to look at these passages where God is saying, obey me. Here is something you must do. It's not so that it will ruin our lives. It's so that we will experience life to the fullest. Right? God isn't saying you must do this and do that because he's trying to find the things that you would really enjoy and ruin them to remind you he's God. No, he's going, I want you. Jesus said, I've come to give life and give to the fullest. The enemy comes to destroy your life. I've come to give life and give it to the fullest. So here's what you must do. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Let's begin there, and we'll touch on part of this passage. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Again, he's popular. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. He's quite popular again. We're going to see here in verses 20 through 26 a list of blessings and woes. Let's just listen to these, and then I'm going to teach specifically verse 27. But let's just listen to these blessings and woes. And these blessings and woes uh, are a bit of a statement on how Jesus is telling people how they relate to God the Father, and it points to a future fulfillment also of the kingdom. So here in verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. This is saying to those that are choosing to follow Jesus, like you're troubled now, that there will be a day when all of your trouble goes away. Verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. He's saying a lot here, and I can't get into it at a level that I'd like, but basically what he's pointing toward is that there will be a day when all that's broken will be restored. And those of you that are comfortable in this life and relying on something other than Jesus is King, beware. Beware to you. Because there will be a day when all that you've trusted and that satisfied you will leave you empty and wanting. We see in verse 27 a specific area that Jesus calls us to obey, and that's in this area of love. So here at hand is the issue of obedience in the area specifically of love. Verse 27, But I say to you to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, let me just pause here. The word sinners and this idea of sinners, those that are not governed by the principles of the kingdom of God, that is here what he has in mind. People as evidenced by their disobedience for God. Love your enemies, verse 35. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What we see here are seven aspects of unconditional love that we're to obey. Now, for us to love in this way, something supernatural has to happen in our heart. Our inclination will be to look at these things and go, okay, I need to be better at loving my enemy, so I'm going to go try harder to love my enemy. But what we must begin with is a conversation like this, saying, I cannot love my enemy. I cannot do these seven things. I cannot do it. That's the first admission. I cannot do the things that Christ says I have to do, the areas that I have to obey, I cannot do those things on my own. That is preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's a reminder that we need God working in our lives, coursing through our veins, sanctifying us and molding us and shaping us. We cannot just go, yes, I recognize that Jesus is a great teacher and the Messiah. Now I'm going to go do everything he tells me to do. No, that that won't work because there's an issue. And that is your heart is still in need of change, still in need of transformation. You will not be able to do these seven things unless you stay linked up to, submitted to, uh, abiding in Jesus Christ. You won't be able to do them. The first one, here it is. Love your enemies. Now, the Old Testament ethic was to love others. But we don't see in the Old Testament actually love your enemies. Jesus is saying something that is radically different than the way they understood love. Love your enemies. And they would not have been able to do it on their own. He's moving their understanding of what it means to relate to God from an external religious system to the heart. This is what the Sermon on the Mount does. Jesus is saying that you have heard things that make you look religious, but I'm going to tell you something that's going to require your heart to be changed. Love your enemies. Who is your enemy? I mean, I'm like, don't call it out, especially if they're here. Um, think of somebody that is your enemy. What does it feel like when you hear Jesus saying, love them? It's horrible, isn't it? It's frustrating. Like, what? You don't know what that person has done to me. You don't know how they've harmed me, how they've hurt me, how they've wounded me. You say, I can't do it. And let me tell you something, you can't. You cannot do it. Unless God works in your heart in a supernatural way. Love your enemy. Second thing he says here in verse 27, do good to those who hate you. As if loving your enemy wasn't hard enough. Or now to do good to those people? Or to actually behave before those people in such a way 
that it would be considered good to good to those who hate you. Verse 28, pray for those who mistreat you. What Jesus is doing here to this crowd is much like what it feels like in this room. Causing every one of us to go, that is not easy. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what life with Christ looks like. I just wanted to get out of going to hell. I just wanted to get my physical disease healed. And what Jesus is wanting to do is something that's going to require him to engage my heart. Oh man, I don't know about that. I mean, let's be honest. It'd be easier to just go down the road and find some kind of principled self-help gospel that just tells you how to live a better life or how to kind of escape the pain that you're in. But what Jesus is saying is, I want you to engage the difficulties around you and I'm going to work in your life in such a way that you could be a blessing there. You could show love there. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I had a moment at this camp out where maybe more than I have recently, I've thought about hitting another man. I know it's a bit of a confession. I confess it to you in the presence of my wife. Um, we're, we're sitting around uh, this campfire. There's four other dads. And I walk up on the campfire, and uh, one of the men there, Ash, actually, who goes here, he was there, uh, he says to this, uh, I guess he had said to them that I'm a pastor. One of them had maybe, maybe asked. I was off doing something, and then I came back. And so I walk up, and the guy says, the guy says, uh, you're a pastor? He was really surprised, which made me kind of reevaluate my interactions with him over the last six months. I was like, what? You know. Um, and I said, yeah. And he was really cool with it, like really interested by it. And, and he said, oh, man, that's great. You know, I'm a, where, do you, you know where do you preach? I'd love to come in here. And I was like, this is kind of cool, you know, because in the presence of all these dads that we've been praying for for three years, and, you know, and, um, and uh, it was kind of a cool moment. But then he launches into this crazy story which was really, really a knock on uh, Christianity. And he's basically just saying, in the presence of all these men, I, I mean, he's, basically, he's told Ash that he teaches in his Sunday school, but he, he doesn't believe any of it. He didn't believe, he's just like, I don't believe any of it. You know, I, my mother-in-law, she's always like, you know, if you died, where'd you go? And I'm just like, oh, Jesus, you know, what in the world is she talking about? You know, he's kind of like looking at his buddies, like, oh, you know, like, and I'm just sitting there like, you are in, I, didn't, I won't say, you are a, a, um, a, a dummy, <laughs> what I'm thinking. Um, and, and I'm just, I mean, I'm just sitting there and I kind of look over at Ash and Ash is looking at me like, what is happening right here? This whole thing's unraveling. It was like, yeah, first, and, and he's basically telling this story about how uh, his mother-in-law was trying to tell him about Christ and he just thinks it's all dumb. But he says this as a part of our conversation. So in that moment, I felt a little mistreated, frankly, because he knows what I do. It would be like if Gary Kubiak were right here and we all know he coaches the Texans. Go Texans tonight. I'm going to the game. Um, and, and we were to say to him, somebody were to come up here and go, hey, you coach the Texans? Oh, man, I would love to go to the game. I mean, I hate the Texans. 
And, I mean, I don't think they're any good. And believing in the Texans is absolutely foolish. I mean, right, guys? You know? And, and I mean, at the very least, respect Gary Kubiak and the fact that he's given his life to coach the Texans, right? I mean, he's not, I feel like he's sitting right here. Lot, would you just pat Gary Kubiak on the shoulder? You know, I mean, and so this is what I am. In this moment, at this camp out, I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, I don't care if you, I mean, I do care if you don't believe, but it doesn't surprise me, right? The road is narrow that leads to eternal life. The road is wide that leads to destruction. You know, I'm not going to all these verses. I'm just going to bust. You know, you're blind. You know, the gospel's foolishness to those that are perishing, you know? And, and I'm thinking all this stuff to myself, but I'm not saying, I got my, like, Christian, like, hmm, yeah, you know, okay? And... And, but at the very least, don't disrespect me in the presence of all these people. And, and as I left that moment, I thought to myself, what do I do? Should I have said something? Like, you know, bust him right there? Because some of the stuff he was saying was just ridiculous and frankly quite easy to just whatever. And, and, but you know what God said to me? Pray for him. You've got to pray for him. And I text messaged Ash. I said, because Ash was still in there. I left him in the fire. And, um, <laughs> and I said, Ash, man, I'm praying for you as you tear your story with these guys, you know? And he's like, We're, I'm going to do it, you know? And I, he, he, we text messaged back, you know, this guy weird. It was kind of a thing. And, I, and let me tell you something God said to me. He said, you cannot reason with somebody like this. You need uh, the power of God to work in their life. So for those people that are around you that are mistreating you for whatever reason, especially if it's because of your faith, what do you do? Do you post on your Twitter or your Facebook status something that's, that's venomous towards them or that group? No. You know what you need to do? Is you need to pray for them. Pray for people who mistreat you. Let's move on. Do not retaliate, verse 9. It's, a, again, an Old Testament kind of ethic. Where, and we see this quite often in the Old Testament where uh, people would pray uh, in a vengeful way against their enemies. Jesus is saying, do not retaliate. Somebody does something to harm you, it's unnecessary to retaliate. God will deal with them. Trust me. Verse 29, what does it look like to love? It looks like giving freely. Be generous. Look at that verse in 29. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Here we go. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So most people had like an inner garment and an outer garment. And so if a person were a robber and they were to come and steal that outer cloak, what he's saying is be generous to those people that have mistreated you. Pour out a blessing on them. Like, don't worry about equity because God is going to take care of equity in his sovereign way that he does. Give to everyone who begs from you. That's an interesting thing, right? In the city as we have people all around us begging. I think there is um, there's a way we can give to those people that's helpful to them. I mean, frankly, when somebody's begging for me, if I uh, choose not to give them something, what I will do t- sometimes is point them in the direction where they can get food and help. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. What Jesus is saying here is really radical. And I think what he's doing, especially as we see in verse 31, treat others as you would like to be treated. What, what he's doing is he's pushing religion, the religious system, 
beyond the external to the internal. And what's, what's being exposed is people's hearts. And the only way that our hearts can operate in such a way that we love our enemies, that we'd actually want to pray for those that mistreat us, that we would operate in, in uh, any way other than vengeful when we're harmed, we'd want to bless those people that curse. The only way that that is even possible as a rhythm of our life is if God reaches into our heart and transforms it and changes it. The only way we can obey is if God does something in us and our obedience reveals our faith. So if you don't obey, the first stop is with God and getting right with God. And saying, God, would you work in me? Would you help me? Would you push out the dark areas of my heart? You know, as I interact with my son Kobe, especially in a weekend like this, what I'm doing is and teaching him to obey is in the moments where he says to me, Dad, in, in, in his way, Dad, it's hard for me to obey. I don't ever say to him, I try not to ever say to him, well, you just need to obey. You know what, you know what I do? I say, you know what? Your inability to obey reveals your need for God to work in your life. So what we do is we pray. And I'm not perfect at it. I'm not great at it. And I did not grow up like that, frankly. But that's what it's called, apply the gospel. Whenever you find it hard or difficult to do these things, what you must do is go, these, my inability to love in this way reveals my need for Jesus. Now, if you can do all these things perfectly, you don't need Jesus. You're excused from ever coming back. But if you struggle in any one of these areas, and you recognize that you cannot do it on your own, what it does is press out this, this cry to God, a cry of worship. God, I need you to work in me. Do you understand? Again, it's moving our faith and religious understanding beyond the external to our hearts. Jesus here in verse 46, if you skip down a bit, says to this crowd, many of whom have said, yeah, Jesus, we're, we're, we're with you. Why do you call me a Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house, dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does them or does not do them, it's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream rose, broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This rhythm of obedience and faith is what builds a strong foundation so that when the storms of life come, we can be strong. If you're unwilling to have your heart exposed before God and so that He can give you obedience and faith, then your foundation will be weak and when just a minor trial comes along, you'll be crushed. The ruin of your house will be great. These commands are tough. I get it. But there's something about the difficulty of them that I love. Because 
again, it reveals our need for Jesus. You say, well, what is Jesus? What's he doing here? Does he have, really have the best in store for us? Maybe my son thinks that whenever I tell him to do something. Does my dad really want me to have fun here? That's what he's wondering. Is my dad just trying to keep me from, from having fun? Whenever my son hurt his feet, he knew that I care about him because I got down on my knees and I, I was kind of rubbing his feet. I was helping his feet. I was rubbing the dirt off the places that were extra dirty. I was getting his shoes for him and I was helping him sit down by the fire. And then afterwards, I went and got his flip-flops for him. And I walk with him as all the kids are running everywhere. So in a sense, I sacrifice for him because I do care about him. I do want him to experience the fullness. And although he didn't obey perfectly, in that moment what it did was it drew him together to me as a father, trusting that, you know what, maybe my dad does know. And he wants what's best for me as revealed by his willingness to sacrifice and help me. That's a small illustration, but maybe it reminds us that Jesus wants the best for us so much that he died on a cross on our behalf. He sacrificed for us. He didn't just say, hey, do all these things, I'm out of here. He said, do all these things, and then I'm going to pay the ultimate price so that you can. This is the gospel. Do you believe? So what area of these seven that I've listed do you struggle Make it your first stop to go to God and go, God, I need you to change my heart. Who in your life would you count as an enemy that you have a hard time loving? Who is persecuting you that you need to pray for? Who needs a blessing even though they don't deserve it? Where have you been retaliating? Don't dig down deep and say, I can do this. You'll fail. Instead, go to Jesus and go, Jesus, I need you to supernaturally work in my heart. And even if it takes a day, it takes a year or ten years, I'm going to keep running to you because I want to obey your commands. This is the gospel. Let's pray together.